Welcome to another edition of Sounding Off, a podcast brought to you by the good folks at The Sound of Victory. I'm Courtney Cox, she's Perry Johnson, and today we're thrilled to be joined by Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, cultural critic, and author of several best-selling books, including The Crown Ain't Worth Much, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, A Fortune for Your Disaster, and most recently, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. He is also the genius behind Sonic Project 68 to 05, a playlist project, Lost Notes 1980, and Object of Sound. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, before A Little Devil in America, you beautifully brought together a variety of musical and sporting performances together in your collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. I love it. I teach it in my intro to AFAM class. It's really inspires my students to think about their relationship to pop culture and how they write about it. And in the book, you give space for how athletes like Serena Williams and Allen Iverson have navigated racism and sexism in the broader sports media complex, as well as how musical artists allow us to understand grief and loss through folks like Future and in one of my favorites in that collection, songs like the White Me Down remix. And for us at The Sound of Victory, we love how you bring these elements of music and sport together to consider, for example, how wrestling legend Ric Flair articulates the showmanship and bravado of a rapper. How would you describe the relationship between music and sport? Or maybe another way to say it is, what does sport sound like to you? Well, I, I often think about you know, there's there's a reason why I think people often talk about some sports, particularly I think the ones I, I grew up playing soccer and basketball and played soccer in college as uh, poetry in motion because of a series of movements can kind of braid together a sonic landscape just off of how they appear. I, I, I look at some athletes and think about uh, the orchestral nature of their movement. Steph Curry feels to me like a stringed instrument when he plays, or someone like Joel Embiid is percussive. Um, these kind of things are interesting. I mean, you know, I, and I've always kind of thought this. I, I don't really watch football anymore, but I grew up watching football, and I, I've always thought there was something musical about Barry Sanders, how he could move that well low to the ground and um, that kind of thing. And so I don't know if I have a great answer for how sports sounds broadly, but I do think that they're the athletes I love most are the ones who seem like um, they are embodying some type of instrumentation in their play. Absolutely. I love the running. I think there's something about running backs that uh, has something, there is something musical, there's something rhythmic, there's something fantastic that I think I think there's ways that when we call soccer the beautiful game I think soccer gets a lot of the love um but I do think there's ways as someone I'm very big into basketball I think there there are ways that when folks are making these parallels to jazz and basketball it makes sense to me when folks are making these kind of articulations on um, how musically there is this connection, whether we're thinking about the easy low hanging fruit is improvisation, right? Um, but I yeah. think that there's something, there's something I, I'm thinking about this percussive aspect that I think is super, super interesting. And, and we ask this question to everyone that we interview. And I think this has been the one that has legs of like thinking like the instrumental aspect of, yeah. of athletic performance that I think is, is really rich. Yeah, that's such a great opening question too, because I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I sometimes think that I watch sports now. You know, most of my favorite sports teams, most of the teams I root for, are 
are pretty bad. Um, well, most is almost not fair, especially since I, I no longer watch NFL, so I don't have to put up the Bengals anymore. <laughs> um, but I would say a, a large portion of them, you know, bad or disappointing or, or they were bad, you know, like, so when I got into the W, like when I got into WNBA, I, I, um, I got heavy into it. I was always a bit into it, but I got heavy, heavy into it when I lived in Connecticut. I uh, lived in Connecticut for a couple of years and UConn's women are kind of the team in Connecticut, but the sun, at least when I lived there, was this, this team that I was so much more attached to because they were kind of just like, toil- at that point, they were kind of just like toiling away, you know, playing in the casino, doing their best. They're, they're like, the fans would maybe show up or maybe not, that kind of thing. But for like UConn women's games, and this was when Stu, this was Stu was at UConn, you know? So like people were coming from everywhere. Like I would sometimes have to be on UConn's campus on game days and the line, you know, it's like a one lane road to get into stores, you know? And it would be, the line would be just impossible. In the contrast, those two things, obviously, you know, I loved, I loved UConn's women, but I was like, I think the sun are maybe the team I'm drawn to, which is a microcosm, I think, of my relationship with sports in general. And I'm drawn to whoever feels most like the underdog, because I think there's a lot of freedom and a lot of improvisation that exists in the world of underdogs, where if someone knows, I mean, I'm watching this now, I'm a Timberwolves fan, I'm watching this now with Anthony Edwards, right? Where the minute I think that he kind of, it clicked where he was like, you know, this team's probably not going to win a lot of games. So I don't have to be the answer. There was a real freedom to his game. And through that freedom, he's unlocked something. And I, I think I'm, I'm always aching for that kind of improvisation because that's, you know, I like to think of the athlete as a, as a band leader of their own little, of their own body, of their own corner of what they're capable of. And I think improvisation is key. Now, ideally, some improvisation will serve winning at some point, but even if it doesn't, I still enjoy it, you know? There's lots that I sort of, I'm gonna go back and re-listen to this and, and unpack it a bit, because I think to Courtney's point, we've asked this question so many times and have, have, have never gotten this answer of thinking about the way that there's, a, there's an orchestration, there's an orchestral component of the, the musicality of the bodies on a court, the musicality of bodies on the field, of each, each fitting together in a way that is both individuating and sort of necessary to complement what else is happening. I want to focus in on on one specific musical artifact, if you will, um, and I've been very excited to see you highlight this, and that's Tusk, uh, the 1979 release and 12 yeah. album from Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Courtney and I were were fortunate to first cross paths at USC. Um, and quickly fell into friendship over a shared love of, among other things, music and sport. And the backdrop, the musical soundtrack to many of our conversations was the Trojan marching band performing <laughs> Tusk, which has become, which, you know, is the title track from that, that album, but has also become an unofficial anthem for USC, yeah. um, for Trojan football specifically. Um, and in fact, the 1978 uh, USC marching band is featured on Tusk. They recorded that and filmed it live at, at Dodger Stadium. So I'll tell on myself here to say I grew up listening to Fleetwood Mac, listening to Rumors, but but didn't actually listen to Tusk until after I was introduced via USC. So it was my introduction to Tusk was via USC. And I thought for a long time it was USC's <laughs> a sort of unofficial anthem and then realizing, oh, no, this is this is very much a Fleetwood Mac song. But um, I've been excited to see you featuring it in, in Instagram stories and interviews lately about the importance 
this album to you. So I, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your story of how you came to this album, wow. what it what it means for you in terms of, of your musical identity um, more broadly. Well, for, this is a big question for me. You know, the USC Marching Band has such an interesting musical legacy because they've played at the Grammys a couple of times. Have you ever seen the performance of them doing 15 Step with Tom York at the 08 no. Grammys? No, I think it's away immediately. <laughs> I could be wrong on the year. Uh, I'm resisting the urge to Google it right now, but I've, I've divested from the Grammys a while ago, but I still do kind of delight in the performances that take place at the Grammys. And um, that is one of my favorite. So Tusk is interesting because I'm, you know, like many other people, my journey to Fleetwood Mac was kind of all over the place because I first heard rumors and then bounce back to the self-titled and then bounce back to the Peter Green era stuff before going further into further into Buckingham Knicks, the Buckingham Knicks era of Fleetwood Mac. You know, people really like to fixate on the strangeness of Tux, the quote unquote strangeness of it. I don't think, I think it's maybe aesthetically strange or the stories, the mythology is strange of like Lindsey Buckingham building that like sound chamber in his bathroom and beating on Kleenex boxes and all that type shit. People love those kind of things because it's like, oh, how weird. But Rumors to me is a significantly weirder album <laughs> because of the mechanics of how that album was required to be made. And because of just the somewhat horrifying nature of its making, right? Like John McVie had to play bass on You Make Love and Fun. He had to be present for that. He couldn't opt out of that situation. You know, Lindsay and Stevie are singing to and at each other on I Don't Want to Know. That's horrifying. And that requires a level of emotional detachment or emotional numbing that I think is significantly more strange than beating on Kleenex boxes or whatever kind of weird meandering impulses Lindsay Buckingham was exercising throughout the making of Tusk, which to me are just not that weird in part because I think the sonic payoff is very good. Like I think, you know, what makes you think you're the one is just like one of the best Fleetwood Mac songs ever made. But I also think there's something that I, again, if I, this is my, my underdog impulse coming out. There's something I also like about the album after the very, very big album where a band chooses to not replicate themselves for the sake of, which is hard. It is hard to do that. This is where sport and music differ, right? Where you see all the time, someone has a singular season in a sport and they try to replicate it because they have to, but they just can't get it back. Sometimes they can. In music, it's, it's so easy to replicate oneself for the sake of money or for the sake of sonic continuity or for the sake of selling a trillion records again. But there's something about Tusk. And to be fair, Tusk is an outlier because after Tusk, you know, Fleetwood Mac was like, fuck it, we're going back. We're going back to what we know. But I love an outlier album, I, especially you can't get much bigger than Rumors is the thing, you know? Even at the time they were making Tusk, that you can't get, there's no way they made Tusk and thought this is going to sell a billion copies. The, you know, the, the uh, tabloid-esque phenomenon wasn't there anymore. It's one thing to make an album in the midst of a very public drama and to play on that drama to do the Rolling Stone album cover or the Rolling Stone magazine cover where they're all in bed together and all that kind of shit. 
it's another thing when that wears off and then people are like, well, these people fucking hate each other. So what, you know, that's, it's, it's harder to, to, to do something that sounds new. Yeah. And I think that that question of strangeness or weirdness, it's also like, how, how are we thinking about what, what counts as strange or what counts as weird too, right? Of like the beating on Kleenex boxes is, you know, perhaps innovative, right. Or, or outside of the box, but that's, that's like a sonic um, strangeness, which is different than the sort of emotional detachment, the numbing, the like group dynamic strangeness that's happening in a space where as a musician, you both have to be very present in in a way to play live right and to fit into other things that are happening and and yet detach yourself from from what you're singing about or who you're singing it it with and and so i think that you are you're speaking to that um in a way that sort of that uh, acknowledges the that strangeness of of being in that safe space of being willing to show up in that space and then to continue showing up in those spaces with something that's not only like oh it happened but that is is sort of on on, ongoing yeah Listen, I would rather beat on a million Kleenex boxes and have to share a microphone with an ex. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to me, I'm no, I don't have a, you know, I'm definitely not a therapist. If I were, I wouldn't spend so much time in therapy probably. Uh, But I think there's a way that feels like Fleetwood Mac perhaps has never healed themselves as individuals because of what rumors required of them to do. It's a very deal with the devil kind of thing, you know? Yeah, and and, and perhaps that is speaking to the outlier of, of Tusk coming after that, like that thinking about that as a perhaps a musical step in in that process of, of grief. A res- I don't think a response is the right because I think response sometimes makes things sound too finite of like mm, yeah. <laughs> you happen and then you respond to it, right? As, as opposed to being yeah. the next phase perhaps of, of moving through something that required um, a separation that didn't repeat sort of the formula that had been so successful to them. Um, and as a fan and as a listener, I too am grateful. Listening to both of you talk about that, it made me think about the difference with 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 a band in, in dysfunction uh, versus a team, um, or even the team that a- achieves something. There are so many championship teams that are broken up in the off season. Yeah. Um, that that there there is a way of maybe sport in some ways acknowledges there's no way sometimes to replicate the magic or you got to the finals, but you lost. And now we got to deal with salary cap issues. We can't bring the team back to go for it again. And in college sports, it's like people graduate, people are leaving one and done is a thing, you know? So I think about, about those moments or, you know, with the Fleetwood Mac comparison, I I was thinking about um, Phil Jackson's book, the last season, how he's detailing uh, what's happening with Kobe and Shaq Perry is a huge Lakers fan. Like there's there's this weird dynamic between teams. There are plenty of teams where people don't like each other. People don't mess with each other, but they are able to do a thing. Um, and so I'm thinking about those parallels of greatness or achievement or success, despite the dysfunction, the grief, the loss that are that's also kind of there too. So what you were saying earlier about the like repeat thinking about um, Fleetwood Mac and, t- and rumors of like these repeat expectations of you come off of a really hot, hot season, a really hot album. I was listening to the radio yesterday morning, driving in the car and, and the DJ conversations were already like, all right, who do we were so blessed last year with the Dodgers and the Lakers in the midst of a right. pandemic. And it was like, all right, if we can only pick one, who do we want to do it more? There's already this sort of pitting that's happening about how can we repeat? Who's going to do it? If we can only pick one between the Dodgers and the Lakers 
years. And so it's like that expectation is wealthy. This is gross. Yeah, that must be nice. Must be nice. I I will say that, I, you know, LeBron for me is really important because he's one of not the greatest Ohioan, but one of them, you know, Tony Morrison for me is, is by far and away the greatest Ohioan we've ever had. Um, And so I would love to see him get another title. I am a little concerned. You know, what's interesting is it, it feels like there's been this mythology built up that has made LeBron almost superhuman because to be fair, he has done some things that I've seen. I mean, I watched, as I'm sure y'all did too, I, but up close, I mean, I saw that 3-1 series against the Warriors. It didn't seem real. Like, it did not seem like a real feat. So I feel like there's this mythology around LeBron as indestructible. And I think we're going to have a really hard time coming to terms with his body just not being able to maintain the stress that it has been. I mean, he played so many games for so many seasons consecutively. As good of as good of carries he takes care of his body with him. He's also like my age, you know. Like I was in high school when LeBron was in high school. And, you know, granted, I'm not the athlete he is. I can I can still get three miles in, but it takes me a little longer to get up the steps, these kind of things. But I think that there are limits on the human body that have to be acknowledged. And I think it's gonna be hard to acknowledge that. And so you know, when I see these things about people being like, well, the playoffs hit, he's going to be a different person. I hope that. I want that. But I, I do wonder if we're placing an unfair expectation on the realities of time. Absolutely. I mean, we were talking right before you hopped on about all of our various, as as folks that were also in high school and Brown was in high school, you know, things just, things just ache for no reason. You know, it doesn't matter how many, how many finals you you're in, you know, yeah. the thirties hit different. And for those that aren't yet in this realm, you'll feel it when it happens, things will, you'll wake up and things won't be the way you left them when you went to bed. So one of my favorite pieces in your new book is titled Fear, A Crown, where you seamlessly weave in grainy VHS footage of Mike Tyson with high school hallways, deaf comedy jam, and more. It holds space for fear, its interaction with mainstream ideals of masculinity used sometimes as an act of terror, sometimes as an act of survival. And in the midst of this, you offer up this rich analysis of the harms of gentrification. You write, quote, the basketball courts vanished and so the kids nailed a milk crate to the top of an old wall, but then the wall got torn down too. It's easiest to think about gentrification in terms of what once was standing and what no longer is. But I think of it more often as a replacement of people and their histories, the way a shifting landscape can obscure what once was so that a person can't take someone to their old neighborhood and show them where they learn to shoot baskets, end quote. What you so beautifully articulate here is the importance of space as home, home town as play as worth protecting um so we've been thinking through this a lot in our work as well can you talk a little bit more about the relationship that you see between gentrification and the communal sporting spaces we see disappearing across the country i can only speak for my area and i you know i feel like in some ways when i was coming up kids who lived in the city played at columbus city schools that still does happen to a degree but gosh, recently I went back to the park across the street from my dad's house where I played. Great players played. The great Kenny Gregory played there. Esteban Weaver played there. You know, the East Side in some ways when in the area I was growing up, it was a bit of a basketball mecca. And now, you know, the rims are turned around and, and not just because of COVID, they're just worn and 
torn down. So there's actually no hub for the kind of miraculous watching of the sport. Because when I was a kid was when folks like Kenny and Esteban were playing and I was too young to play, but I got to sit on like the jungle gym and watch the older kids play or act as kind of like a de facto ball boy. You know, the ball rolled out of bounds, I would chase it, you know? That is what made me love the game more than watching NBA players. What's to say like in my neighborhood, there are, play, like, there are players who I want to be like. Like I want to be like Esteban Weaver, you know? I want to be like Antoine Lavender, like these guys. And I think about that when I think about the changing landscape of neighborhoods, I, I do think about the centralized nature of young folks watching basketball players who live where they live, who grew up where they grew up. And not even on some shit where it's always like, I can make it out of this place. Not even like that. Not, you know, I now live very close to the neighborhood I grew up in. So I, I was never trying to make it out of anywhere. But to have a dream that I could attach to someone who wasn't just on TV. Kenny Gregory might not ring a bell, but he uh, played at Kansas in the late 90s and was an all Big 12 player. But to us, you know, he's one of the great high school basketball players in, in Central Ohio history, in Ohio history, period. He lived a few houses down from me. And I'll never forget, he made the McDonald's All-American game and he won the dunk contest. And I'll never forget that night. I'll never forget watching that with so many people in my neighborhood and seeing him on TV as we'd seen him in real life, as we'd seen him walking back from the corner store, as we'd seen him running through the neighborhood and training and feeling like a part of us. And he won the MVP. He won MVP of the McDonald's All-American game next day, the next night. And I remember all of us feeling like we had a part of that because I chased after a ball when he missed a shot and threw it back to him. So therefore I had a small part in that. When that can't be touched, I, I do worry about the capability for a genuine affection, not just rooted around sport, but rooted around place. I think this is a, a perfect segue to sort of build off this point and, and continue expanding. And for me, one line that I keep returning to from A Little Devil in America is the, the opening to your really, really beautiful reflection on Josephine Baker, where you write, quote, a country is something that happens to you, end quote. And as Courtney mentioned, for us, the, the question of space, a place or belonging is a key through line, um, not only with respect to space and place and, and how questions of belonging can, can be an entry point for examining what it means to be of and from a place, but also with respect to how belonging shapes identities of fans and identities of communities of fandom um, around artists, around athletes, around team. Mm. And you provide a really thoughtful consideration of this, writing, quote, it is true that to love a place is as complicated as any other relationship, romantic or platonic, perhaps even more so. A city's flaws can be endless and reflect the endless flaws of the people who populate it. To attach identity to love for a place you didn't ask to be in and a place that was not ever and will never be yours is a fool's errand, but it is one I have taken to because oh, how I adore knowing the corners of a place, a story that only a handful of people know, how I love hearing those stories from other people, from other pockets of this exhausting and dismantling city, end quote. So for me with this, you really hold space for the messiness of loving places uh, and by extension, often also loving the teams or figures from those places that you point to. 
that don't always love us back, right? Or that don't always love you back. Right. So I'd love to, to dig into this a little bit more with you, perhaps expanding on how, how our identities or how your identity becomes sutured to particular places and figures by, by circumstance as much, um, if not more than by choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I, I'm only in born and raised in Columbus, but by a very specific set of circumstances, you know, my, my father got a job here, but he was looking for a job elsewhere. It's not like he was driven here by love. My family mostly is from New York and this is where work was. And that in and of itself is not romantic. It's just so much of what it is to mythologize a place, I think, is to one, create a mythology larger than one's circumstances. Because I think without that, particularly if you're Black and in America, there's not a lot of romance with with how, you know, how this happened to many of us. And it also, you know, in that piece, I also acknowledge that there were a people here before my people were here. And it is through clarity that I actually think a robust love can be held in its fullness through that clarity of complication. But, but I live in a city named after the, the violent colonizer, you know, I can't get too romantic about the shit. And when I say it like that, and when I present it like that, I understand that my affections are detached from the mythology of city, the capital C city. And my affections are entirely embedded within the structures that have allowed me to love my people and see my people and those people and what those people have built for themselves in their communities and have generously allowed for me to be a part of. My love for Columbus, Ohio is not it's not like my heart is beating for the, the broad idea of the city. I'm an east sider. I'm from the east side. I moved back, you know, when I was like, it's time for me to settle down here. I'm going to be here. I moved back to the east side for a reason. This is the corner of the city I love and where I feel most reflected in that complicated love. And I needed to be present in that for me to, to want to stay here, to not have my complications and frustrations with this place outweigh my affections for it, at least not yet. Yeah, and in that messiness, I think acknowledging that messiness allows for that robustness to your to your point too. It's not not minimizing it, but of sort of acknowledging the um, complicated histories, complicated presence that continue to confront us, so that we continue to navigate in particular spaces. So I want to move down the bookshelf a little bit. Um, I first came to your work via your third book, Go Ahead and Rain Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, which I find to be such a generous, um, really beautiful examination of both your own relationship to a group, to its members, to its music, um, and a thoughtful reflection on the historical moment and circumstances that contextualize the art of A Tribe Called Quest and shaped both your introduction and evolving relationship with the group. It's a model for thoughtfully and critically reflecting on fandom. I think one that bridges vulnerability with a sort of universality um, and one of my favorite books to share and discuss with students when I get to teach it. And you conclude your fifth chapter award tour with a reflection on sampling and raps shifting sonic histories where you write, quote, sampling provided more than just a backbone for the music. It was a way to get a new generation to engage with the history of sounds the new music was pulling from. Sampling created a dialogue between past and present and helped bridge between music a rapper was first introduced to and the music they desperately wanted to share with the new world, end quote. Um, so while you're thinking specifically about sampling as techniques, as praxis and rap here, I think this also gets at an important parallel in sport. Um, I often think of this passage when friends get into yet another heated yet loving debate around, for example, who was the better goat, 
Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, etc. <laughs> and uh, to me, while I certainly enjoy hearing friends and families get into those debates and how they support their arguments, the premise seems um, a bit without merit precisely because of what I think you're highlighting with respect to sampling here, that each generation, each iteration pulls and learns from predecessors. And part of the skill as an athlete or as an artist is about being in dialogue with those lineages of artistry and mm -hmm. technique. Can you talk a bit more about how you think about sampling? It seems on one hand, we might think of it as almost a citational practice, a form of archiving, but also as a strategy to connect different historical moments and communities. Oh, yeah, just mostly a citation and archival, because every time I read something I love or every time I hear something I love, I'm storing it. Even if I don't realize I'm storing it, I'm kind of storing it. Or every time I watch something I love, I'm making a little bank and I unlock that bank, even unknowingly again, when I sit down and take to my own creations. And that is a tool that is sampling, you know, and I think richly citing where all of us pull our mini cells from is a tool of sampling. I think a lot about blues music, particularly in Mississippi, where a lot of those players were playing their songs in different ways throughout the years, you know, reinventing themselves. Because we are all many selves, all capable of performing many, many selves. But when it shows up like that in a song, when you are citing yourself and sampling yourself and reformatting yourself, that is also citation and archival. You know what I mean? And it feels like that is also a generous step, a generous practice to not look at something and say, I can do that better, but to look at something and say, well, I'm so grateful for that. How can I embed that into my practice of cultural work or writing or processing the world that I can't make sense of otherwise? So that's, that's kind of what I return to. I think this conversation, and I love Perry contextualizing it with this, this um, MJ versus Kobe conversation, because then LeBron also gets brought in too, let's not forget. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm interested in your perspective, and I, I love talking to folks from Ohio about LeBron. It's one of my favorite things. I get so much smarter every time. And so I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts in terms of thinking about um, LeBron as a man who transcends basketball, traversing sport, music, education, beyond. And then this idea of LeBron's relationship to music, um, you know, entertainment website Uproxx claiming that LeBron is, um, you know, the most valuable promotional tool in rap via his Instagram. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, you look at like, you know, there's a rapper from Columbus named Jero, who I'm a big fan of. Shout out Jero. Um, who was in a group called Fly Union and then went solo. And, you know, when his single came, his one of his big singles is called a song called Really Got It. And it blew up because LeBron was playing it on his Instagram. And now Jero is on like the NBA 2K soundtrack, you know, this past year. And so, you know, the funny thing about those goat debates, and I think this is just by the good fortune of my age, my exact age, where I got to see LeBron, where I got to see Michael Jordan in his prime. Depending on how you define Michael Jordan's prime, I got to see, I got to see it. You know what I mean? I got to see Michael Jordan in the early 90s. I got to see Michael Jordan in the mid-late 90s. I saw Michael Jordan, and no matter how, what, what part of that you define, I got to see it. And I've gotten to see LeBron James from a 16-year-old high schooler to now. I have so much gratitude for that. I don't have it in me to argue about 
you know, like what a life that I've gotten to witness these two. It's impossible. It's incredible, you know? But I think that that is what interests me. Again, LeBron and I are about the same age, maybe one year apart. I grew up, say I grew up watching LeBron James. I'm not, I'm serious. I grew up up close watching LeBron James. And I think that um, there are times where I maybe don't agree with directions he chooses uh, socially, politically, or whatever. To be clear, I think there are limits that I wish did not exist, but I think exists just by nature of cl- a class divide, right? Like at some point, LeBron is so wealthy. I mean, we're, we're beyond that. Let's be clear, we're beyond that point. But at some point, LeBron is so wealthy that we just, the two of us just don't look at the world the same. That's just gotta be, that's gonna be what it is. You know, there's no way that I can like, there's a great many ways that we might look at the world in a similar way. I'm thankful for those. But at some point, the, the class divide just speaks out and it's like, you know, I don't know, man. Like, I'm, I selfishly don't want him to retire because I just, I still enjoy watching him play so much, but I also know or feel very strongly that like when he retires and has time away from the game, I think his curiosity is going to serve the world in ways we cannot yet imagine. That said, I hope he still has a few more seasons left because I still, I'm, I'm loving watching him play still. Same, same. And you're working on a new book that'll dig into the high school era of basketball in Ohio, which covers the LeBron James era. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and how you're kind of getting all of these things in one place and thinking through this concept, um, knowing that LeBron will will figure, you know, pretty prominently in this book while you're also thinking about space and place as well? Yeah, I mean, the container is going to be basketball movies because I started writing about basketball movies I started writing about He Got Game and that turned into me writing about fathers and basketball. And But LeBron, and it, it began to kind of, basketball films as a container for this question of who gets to make it, quote unquote, and who doesn't. Because of Central Ohio, you know, Columbus in general, I feel like um, there's, this, there's a lot of stories of basketball players who are iconic playground legends who, or even high school legends who didn't, quote unquote, make it. But then I think we have to ask the question of what making it even means. And what making it particularly means for young black folks who are just trying to find a way to survive amidst difficult circumstances. Does making it just mean making it through high school? Does making it just mean being the best player on a playground on a Saturday in the summer when only your neighborhood is watching? You know, does making it mean that when you're open at the three-point line, people are afraid. These kind of things. Of course, LeBron will, will, will factor prominently into that because he is the, the story, capital S story of making it when it comes to high school basketball in Ohio. But it also delves into Kenny Gregory and Espan Weaver and Kevin Martin, who, you know, if not, if not for timing, you know, he would have been Mr. Basketball maybe two, two years in a row. My problem was, you know, he was in LeBron's era. But these kind of stories I wanted to get into, but I also wanted to think about basketball films and how they defined a, a real era for me. 
Also, this is a side note. Basketball movies are just so much better than football movies. Um, I they oh, just yeah. are. It's just hard to it's hard to film football in a realistic way that we want to watch. Friday Night Lights, the TV show, is one of the the best to do it in terms yeah. of making making football feel real. Whereas basketball, it's really easy to build basketball drama in a in a film setting. And there's some film scholars that can probably tell me better reasons why. My my reasoning is really about how shots are blocked and safety in general, <laughs> but um, I'm so interested in this project. And I think that there's so much richness that that ties into a lot of the stuff that that we're interested in thinking through as well. I will say that I think football movies also tend towards corniness in a way, because I do think they have to almost are required to tie together more storylines. And there's a corniness that lies and sometimes you can cash in on that corniness. I'm thinking about Al Pacino's football is a game of inches speech at the end of any given Sunday, which I think is one of the great movie speeches, sports movie speeches of all time. And I don't particularly think any given Sunday is entirely corny. Like, I think it is the one football movie that is on the outskirts of corny, but for me succeeds in, I don't want to say avoiding its corniness, but being self-aware of its corniness. Like Jamie Foxx is almost a cartoon right, at some points of the film, and he's supposed to be. And Al, Al Pacino's like a, a cartoon of a coach, because he's supposed to be. But then we get to the end and we get that football is a game of inches speech, and it's like, wow, this is actually, I hate that I'm moved by this, you know? The thing with coach, I mean, I rewatched Friday Night Lights at the end of the pandemic, and let me preface this by saying nothing ages well, because I don't really think anything should. If I felt as romantically about Friday Night Lights as I did in 2009. That's like a problem with me, probably. But I still enjoy it, don't get me wrong. I still enjoyed large parts of it. There were parts of it I was like, holy shit, this hasn't aged well. I mean, particularly around race, where it's like, oh, we go out to East Dillon and there's always police sirens. And, you know, it's like, not only do we learn there's been black people in Dillon the whole time, but they live here and everyone's afraid of them. It's like this whole, I don't know. But Coach Taylor is a character people love in part because he's presented as an expert orator right at least at least when presented when like pushed up against the lens of his football team less so perhaps at home less so perhaps in other settings but a football movie does give an opportunity i feel like there aren't as many great basketball coach speeches there are some but a football movie almost relies on the vehicle of the orator, the coach as orator, even if it falls flat. Whereas like, I sometimes think I like basketball movies more almost because they are, I think the players drive the narrative more. Absolutely. Like even in Remember the Titans, which, you know, again, has pretty, it's like crash, but football which I know it's based I'm doing air quotes based on a truth, et cetera. But even remember the Titans where we're supposed to believe that the players are driving the narrative, the coaches drive the narrative. It's that lens switch. Even when we get the like left side, strong side thing, which unfortunately still moves me a great deal. But even when we get that moment, I remember the Titans, it very quickly pans to the coaches with this self-satisfied look of like, we did this, right? Basketball movies, I feel like are so propelled by players. Sunset Park and yeah I don't know I could do this forever and I'll stop now because I'm probably rambling no this is this is so helpful you're explaining why I hate watch you know like I like baseball is just pure nostalgia juice like 
it, we know what it is. We know what's happening. We can just fade into it. And that's why Disney can do great baseball movies. And then football is a little more fraught. Um, yeah, and so yeah. I, I, I think that each, each, there's a genre here and then, you know, the music and sport pieces, like the, also the soundtracks melt into that to fitting the genre of what sonically is supposed to match the, the genre of sport film that we're taking in. And so, and then hockey has got its own thing going too. So I think it's a really <laughs> fascinating thing to think about why I'm, I don't buy, when we buy in is the speech, like I, Coach Taylor can hype me up. I can, I can, I can still buy into that. And I can still see how it's so re relevant or how it works on someone in high school because I'm watching it and it's working on me. Um, but then yeah. I think that there's, there is, there are these expectations we have about sport films in general as genre that, that I, I'm so interested in this project because I think it'll be super, super interesting. I know this is like not the most famous Kevin Costner baseball movie, but I think For Love of the Game is really cool. I haven't watched it in some years, but I really think there's something I really adore about that type of film where it's like using one game, not even a day, a game. And we move through the game slowly, a very up close portrait of athlete in game as a vehicle to, I mean, I'm sure I love this because I try to do this in writing sometimes, but it's a vessel to go out, to zoom out. I, I actually think, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is will be disagreed with by most people. I think for love of the great, the game is the great Kevin Costner baseball movie. Wow, that's a that's a hot take that I'm I'm into. Maybe I gotta watch. I gotta watch. I, I'm not a huge Field of Dreams fan, so I can. This is not for me. It's it's a fine take. I think Field of Dreams is the. I'm doing air quotes here. Worst of the of those. It's the third best. It's the third best. Third. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I go. I go for love of the game. Bull Durham field of dreams hmm. okay well we are going to try a new quick rapid fire segment here we're calling it this or that which i'm sure is not an original <laughs> framing i don't think that we invented that at the sound of victory but this version will pit music and sport performances or possibilities against each other and you'll pick your favorite of the two please feel free to explain your answer are you ready yeah yeah i'm excited okay would you rather Hang backstage at a Liz Cambage DJ set or see her hoop courtside at an Aces game? Oh, let me see her play courtside. I, one, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. I have a poster of her in my house. Uh, I have the slam cover that she was on. So big fan. Don't really care much about her DJing. Do love her footwork, in the, like in her post footwork. I would love to see that up close. Okay, strong. Super Bowl edition, better performance, Whitney Houston's pregame national anthem or Prince's halftime show? For me, it's, it's obvious it's Prince's halftime show. There's a couple of reasons here. I'm not very romantic about the national anthem. That's one. Uh, two, I mean, and as great, I mean, Whitney sung it like no one else, clearly. This isn't taking anything away from Whitney Houston. But Prince, is, Prince just had more stage time. So you have more time to do a, any, a, a great number of things, you know? With, with more stage time and more, yeah, I mean, it's Prince, but uh, obviously, you know, Whitney Houston sung that like, like no one else. Okay. Better ode to basketball, Future's March Madness or John Tesh's Round Ball Rock? Oh, uh, March Madness, easily. Hmm. Okay. More beloved MJ, Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan? 
You know, I've, I mean, I've, I've divested from Michael Jackson for a while now. And so I have to say Michael Jordan, but I would respect anyone who'd say Michael Jackson. I mean, I guess my, well, my, my divesting doesn't matter actually, because this isn't asking me who I love more, right? It's asking like, who's more beloved in the American landscape. Oh, that's one way to think about it. I was thinking about, I was thinking about for you personally. Well, I think that, yeah, then these answers are different. For me personally, it's Michael Jordan. But Mm -hmm. I think if we're asking, asking broadly among the, you know, American ecosystem, it's probably Michael Jackson. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Do you think that the jam, so, so then putting that together, the jam music video, um, how does that rank for you in terms of like iconic potential? Like, I can't think of something like the equivalent of something like that being made. I mean, now Drake can make a video with like multiple athletes, but like that is like two two folks like at their peak in a way like yeah. that jam video is like. And the jam video was also like a branding exercise. I felt like it was like a branding thing where, I don't know, there was like two MJs together at last. And so I don't know if we get that. You know, I think that that's why the jam video is kind of iconic and was at the time where, you know, like it's different when Drake just puts kind of a a haphazard array of of professional athletes in a video, you know, I think it would require a bit more effort than that. Although I I always love to see athletes in rap videos have for a long, long time. It's one of our favorites is to go back through and think about all the music uh, sport compilations that have happened in music videos and was actually one of the first things we put together for this (laughs) project was sort of a mashup video. and they're fun to go back and watch for sure. Each episode, we ask our guests, so we'll ask you today to step up to bat into the shoes of a baseball player for this next question. If you were to pick a walk-up song to get you hype, what would it be? I would want to pick a ballad to throw off generally. So I used to, my answer to this used to be Don't Stop Believing, but particularly the part where it's just like the piano buildup mm-hmm. um, and not the, not the final chorus. But I think looking back, I would pick like a big ballad, like not even a power ballad, like a literal ballad. Like I would pick like, I don't know, uh, like Dance With My Father by Luther Vandross or or the crescendo of I Will Always, the Whitney version of I Will Always Love You or something like that. Something to, you know, allow people to feel things. I I would be a bad base. I think one of the hardest things it appears to me to do Whenever people are like, what's the one sport you think you couldn't do? I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around hitting a baseball uh, at the speed, the speed at which they travel, right? Like hitting a hundred mile per hour fastball just doesn't make sense to me. The fact that there, there are many, many athletes who can do that just blows my mind. Like I, other parts of baseball, I can wrap my head around, I can wrap my head around fielding. To some extent, I can wrap my head around pitching to a degree, but the very act of like hitting or, or hitting a pitch that is moving, like hitting a change up. It just, that shit is mind blowing to me. I can't believe people can do that. Yeah, that's again, the first time to give us that response. Um, but I, I feel that in terms of like the drama, the heightened emotion that comes with a ballad that that taps into something for sure. Um, although I also do love the piano riff of, of Don't Stop Believing. So all very strong choices that we will put together in a playlist to share. Um, so final question for today. If, if we were to dream up a collaboration, if there was a particular athlete, team, athlete, artist, collaboration that you would love to see what might that be I was gonna say I want to be selfish and I would love to write like a joint poetry book with 
like Diana Taurasi. I don't even know if she writes poems, but I feel like she would be a good poet. Like, or at least a fun poet to hang out and write. Definitely fun. I think you would have to hone maybe a little bit of the craft, but yeah. fun for sure. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, maybe um, after the, the basketball book is, there's, an, there's another project on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, by the time that comes out, maybe she'll be, maybe she'll be retired and done. But at this point, at this rate, like, who knows? <laughs> Thank you so much, so, so much for joining us. It's been such an honor to talk with you today. Thank you for making the time. Um, Hanif Abdurraqib is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic. He's the author of several best-selling books, which we cannot recommend highly enough, including the newly released gem, A Little Devil in America, Notes and Praise of Black Performance. Thank you for listening to another edition of Sounding Off, brought to you by The Sound of Victory. If you want more music and sport collisions, check us out at soundofvictory.org or on Instagram at The Sound of Victory. Subscribe to Sounding Off wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we want to hear from you. So please rate and review us. Bye.